The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're in the book of Malachi this morning. We're going to go through the whole book. We're finishing up this series on Christ and the Minor Prophets. I know for me, I don't know that I grew up ever hearing a a series on the Minor Prophets other than when I took Old Testament survey. And so I trust that, uh, at least for some of you, it gave you an opportunity to read these books as we went through them. And what we've noticed throughout the series, just by way of reminder, is that God is promising because of His covenant love, because of His steadfast love to His people, He's promising He's going to make good on His covenant. And He's going to deliver and save His people. But throughout the Minor Prophets, He's going to do it through judgment. He's going to bring salvation in the context of judgment. And when He does it this way, it's going to bring Him great glory. Far more glory than if he would have done it any other way. How do we know this? Because he's God and he's perfect and he knows all things. And if there would have been a more glorious way, he would have done it another way. I think that gives us great hope and a great context about our lives. When we're going through suffering, when we're going through pain, we have to trust in God's character when we don't understand necessarily what He's doing in our lives. We have to trust He is good and He's perfect and He's holy and He's sovereign and He's on His throne. And so if something is in our lives that is causing us great sorrow and great suffering, it is because our loving Father in heaven intended this to come through His hands into our lives for His glory and our joy. We have to believe that. It's what Scripture reveals, and I know it is hard to believe at times. I mean, think about this week, the craziness in the news. We're still suffering the, the, the aftershocks, as it were, of all of the racial issues that have come up in the last couple weeks over these shootings. Brother told me this morning six more Baton Rouge police officers were shot last night. On top of that, we have this terrorist attack in France. It's just horrid that a guy would drive a vehicle through a crowd and then open fire. And then this coup in Turkey. And we don't even know all the details yet. And all the, what's going on there. And, and it could cause us to very much be fearful and troubled. And this is the kind of context that Israel was in when the minor prophets were speaking to them. There was no stability in their world. Their enemies were on their borders. Their enemies wanted to kill them. Their government was corrupt. Their priesthood that was supposed to be the mediator between them and God was corrupt. And so they could have been filled with a ton of fear. And so the Lord gives them this message to trust in Him to wait on Him, to hope in Him, to make all of their treasure, all of their hopes, all of their desires, all of their dreams rest in the living God rather than the idols of this earth, rather than chariots and horsemen. Today we would say rather than tanks and bullets and guns. It's not by might nor by 
power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, that He's going to do all these things. And so the coming of Messiah. This is the last prophecy before the New Testament, the book of Malachi. And what we see in the book of Malachi is, once again, an indictment on the people, a a, a prophecy against the leaders of, of Israel and a call for them to repent and return to the Lord. Malachi was written after Israel had gone into exile and returned to the land. They had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And now they had been living for a little while in the land and they had fallen back into old patterns. Uh, The only pattern they didn't fall back into was worship of other idols. But we even see in the book of Malachi that they were flirting with idolatry because they were marrying people who worshipped idols and, and divorcing their wives to do so. And so the book of Malachi speaks, as do all of the other books, about the coming of this Messiah. In fact, I don't think it's a mistake that the, the leaders, the tribe that's indicted, the tribe that's prophesied against in this book is the tribe of Judah. Why is that? Because Judah was the tribe that the Messiah was going to come from. Judah was the royal tribe at this point. They are the ones who had been seated on the throne, beginning with David and his descendants. And yet all of those kings, every single one of them without exception, they sinned and they failed. And they were not the promised Messiah who was going to bring in the kingdom of God. And so the book of Malachi speaks to this. In fact, I just want to, I'm not going to read through the whole book of Malachi to begin with. I decided I'm just going to read through each section as we go. But the first uh, major section, the book of Malachi actually falls out into six oracles or six prophecies that are bound up in, in pairs. And so I'm going to cover these just in one pair and then a second pair and then a third pair. The first pair demonstrates the need for and the provision of a mediator in the Messiah. Verses 1 to 5, let's read this together of chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the first thing we see is the Lord's covenant love, His steadfast love, sets the stage for the coming of Messiah. You see, this is the reason the Messiah is going to come. is not because Israel deserves it. It's not because they're great. They keep rejecting God, and yet God in His covenant love promises to send a deliverer who's going to restore everything that was lost in the garden. He'd been promising it from the beginning. We've seen this over and over again. And so what does He start this prophecy with? I have loved you. I have loved you. You know, I I think this is incredibly important to understand 
that this is the pattern of God in the Scriptures. Beginning in the garden, even before He kicked them out, He demonstrated His compassion and His love by promising to send a deliverer. Before He brought the judgment, He gave them hope and a promise. Do you know in the prophets, judgment is called God's foreign work. His his alien work. Uh, Older translation, the King James says His strange work. By that it means this is the work He does. This is in keeping with His holiness. He must judge sin. But this this is work that is His alien work. It's work that that he, in a sense, doesn't delight in because he delights to love and show compassion and mercy. Isn't that how he revealed his name to Israel? I am the gracious and compassionate one, abounding in loving kindness, the one who forgives sins, but the one who will not relent concerning calamity. So we can never say God is only love. He's holy and righteous and he will judge. But he is a God who loves And he tells these people, I have loved you. I've loved you. And the response is, how have you loved us? And I think the English is unhelpful here because it's almost like it's an accusation. Have you really loved us? But that's not what the Hebrew means here. What the Hebrew means is the emphasis is on the manner. How have you demonstrated your love for us? Not the doubting about God's love. But it's it's more of a, how have you shown you loved us? How have you done this? In what way have you loved us? And then he goes on to say, the proof of my covenant love is that I chose you. I set my affection upon you. I didn't set my affection upon Esau and choose him. In fact, I hated him, it says. The proof of his covenant love is his sparing of the righteous and his condemning of the wicked and what God is saying because by this time, yes, he's referring back to The account when Jacob and Esau, the brothers, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Even before they were born, though, God chose the younger, and he said the younger will, the older will serve the younger. And then it played out in their lives because Esau despised his birthright. He despised the promise of the Lord, and he sold it. Now, Jacob stole it as well, so we don't want to say Jacob was oh so great in fact this is one of the great comforts we're going to see that God is the God of Jacob if God is the God of Jacob he can be our God too because Jacob was a thief and a liar and a cheat amen Amen. now this verse is quoted in the New Testament isn't it turn over to Romans 9 I just want to make some application here before we we get into this promise of the coming of the Messiah. This is setting the stage. What is setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah? The Lord's covenant love of His people. Romans 9, verse 13. In fact, let's go back to verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He says, this isn't on the basis of works. If it was on the basis of works, God would withhold his love from Israel because they failed him. He said, but it's not on the basis of works. It's because I called, I chose. I determined to do this. 
And so then the question arises, verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? By no means may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so it demonstrates the choosing of Jacob is not an arbitrary out-of-the-hat, pick-a-number type choosing. He says it's rooted in his mercy and his compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wow. Then he goes on to say, verse 19, you'll say to me, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? Right? Are we just robots? Is this just destiny and and fate and, and we can't resist his will? And he answers, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now notice it's the same lump of clay. So he's not saying somehow inherently those people God chooses are somehow better than others. It's out of the same lump. But God desires to show mercy and compassion and so out of this lump, he says, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And in the Greek, it's in the middle voice. They are or it's in the passive, but they are preparing themselves for destruction. God is enduring them. It's as if there's a lump sitting there, and He just lets it sort of rot away and be destroyed. He didn't choose for them to be destroyed. They are preparing themselves for destruction by their wicked acts and their rebellion against God. But He says He's going to do this in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. There's the word mercy again which He prepared beforehand for glory. So out of this lump, He chooses in His mercy and His compassion to save some. And He's going to set His affection upon them. He's going to make known the riches of His glory to them. And He's going to prepare them beforehand for this glory. And then Paul says, even us whom He called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so going back to the book of Malachi where Paul was quoting this verse, he's basically saying, this is the understanding of the book of Malachi, what God is saying when he says, I loved you. I set my affection upon you. My covenant love is for you. It's a a love that's full of mercy and compassion. And I chose you not because you were great, not because there was inherently something good in you, but simply because of my loving kindness and my mercy, I chose you out and I'm going to prepare you for glory. And Esau, whom I hated, is going to prepare himself for destruction. And they may build, but I will tear down, he says in verse 4. They're going to be called a wicked country. And the Lord will be angry with them forever. And so this is what Scripture, I understand clearly to be teaching, is that God, when He chooses, He chooses in eternity past. He chooses in His sovereignty. But it's rooted, and you can never separate His election from His love. It's rooted in His love. It's rooted in His compassion. This is not an arbitrary choice out of a hat. This is a setting of His affection upon people made in His image so that they would be with Him forever and be His children in His presence. Be seated at His table. And those He doesn't choose, He passes over. I don't believe in a dual predestination. 
He allows them to fill up the fullness of their sins. He allows them to go their own way and they suffer the consequences of their actions and their decisions and their rebellion against God. And so the Lord's covenant love sets the stage. God is still their ally and He's still going to fight for them. And look what it says in verse 5. Your eyes shall see this. This is back in Malachi chapter 1. We're not in Romans anymore. Back to Malachi. And they shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I think this is why Paul picks up not of the Jews, but only of, also of the Gentiles. He says, your name is going to be made famous beyond the borders of Israel. Israel is going to learn that Yahweh is not a limited territorial deity of Israel only. He's the God who made the heavens and the earth, who owns it all. And not only that, his Messiah... The reason his name is going to be great beyond the borders of Israel, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 49.6, you're going to be a light to the nations. It's too small a thing that you would be a Messiah, a servant to raise up my people Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the nations that they will see my glory. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And this is what Malachi is in the same stream of preaching and proclaiming. Now, why does the Messiah have to come? The next section says because the current priesthood is unfaithful. There needs to be a new priesthood. And the Messiah is going to be the new priest. Chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. So he's addressing the priests. But you say, how have we despised your name? He says, let me tell you. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Try it on him. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that He may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will He show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Might as well shut up those temple doors. Because every time you offer incense burned in fire and animals, it's in vain. It's a stench in my nostrils, God says. From the rising, he says, verse 11. Actually, we're still in verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I already have cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Wow. You think he's upset with them? So this is the need of a Messiah. This is the need of a high priest. This is the issue of your lawyer needs a lawyer, right? These high priests were in bad shape. They needed a high priest. The Lord's name, he says, will be great among the nations, but the priesthood has despised it. And at the beginning of this, back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, if a father deserves honor from his son and a master from his servant, how much more does God deserve honor? He's a greater father and a greater master than any human. He's a divine father and master. And yet they don't show it to him. God says, would you give this to your governor? This local ruler over you? How much less would you do this to the God of the universe? And yet that's exactly what they're doing. They've despised his name by offering polluted and defective sacrifices. And so the priesthood was bankrupt and the sacrifices were unacceptable. And you know what the Messiah is going to bring? A new priesthood and a new sacrifice. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. In fact, we don't have time to look at it, but we could go through Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and show you that Jesus is the better priest and he's the better sacrifice. It's not with the blood of bulls and goats that he brought himself and offered himself to God, but it's with his own blood. He came to God the Father and he offered up himself once for all as a satisfying sacrifice to God the Father. And so he lives forever as a high priest. And he remains forever, it says in Hebrews 10, because he ever lives to intercede for us. This is good news, by the way, that there is a mediator between us and God, the man Christ Jesus, and he's a perfect mediator. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John says. That means we can have hope and we can have assurance in the context of our failures, in the context of our faulty offerings to God, in the context of our polluted worship. We can have hope that we have a Savior and a mediator and a high priest who's standing between us and God and we are acceptable to Him. We have access to the Father. In fact, we can come, as Hebrews says in chapter 4, with great confidence and boldness knowing that He will hear our prayers because we're cleansed by the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats. 
And the sacrifice he offered was not polluted or blemished. It was perfect. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just cover it up for a year. He takes it away and removes it as far as the east is from the west. And so this is the need they had. I just want to trace a couple things through uh, this longer section here. Verse 11 of chapter 1. God promises acceptable worship will be offered among the nations. From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. How is he going to do it? He's going to send his son to be the Messiah and to create worshipers out of every nation, tribe, and people and tongue. And he says, in every place, incense will be offered to my name. This is why Jesus says the Great Commission is for us to go make disciples of all the nations. And I know I've said it a hundred times. We're the ends of the earth. We're on the other side of the planet from Jerusalem. And so God is faithful to his promise. And for 2,000 years, he's made disciples from the early church to today. And we're here in Knights in California as disciples of Christ, desiring to make disciples. So that from the rising of the sun to the setting, his name would be great among the nations. And pure worship would be offered in his name. Verse 14. Why is this? He is the great king. The only king. The Lord of hosts. That phrase is the Lord of the hosts of heaven's armies. He's all of the angel armies of heaven. He is the Lord and commander of them. You want to know why he's great? He made you. He made the whole universe. The heavens and the earth. And he has rights over it. He's the boss. And we're not. That's what the gospel says. But the gospel also says his great love for you. In his great love, he sent his son to die to take the punishment you deserve so you could be in his kingdom forever. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 5. Levi is this picture. Now, if we go back and read the account of Levi, we know he wasn't perfect. He sold his brother into slavery. But here, God is speaking of Levi in his priesthood. And he says in verse 5, the father is faithful to his covenant with Levi because Levi feared the Lord. And so the father granted him life and he granted him peace. And this is what Jesus came bringing as the new priest of a better priesthood. He brought eternal life. And he brought shalom, peace, life as God intends it to be. He's the prince of peace, and he makes peace. And there's one day he's going to make peace rule over this whole world. Verses 6 and 7. What a picture of a perfect priestly ministry. He says, True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is the picture of a perfect priesthood. This is what Christ fulfills when he comes. This is a promise, a picture of what the Messiah would be. So he brings a new priesthood, Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, and he is the new offering. 
Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Secondly, the second set of prophecies is in chapter 2, verse 10 to chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, The grace of the Lord in sending the Messiah through the line of Judah. An emphasis on grace. The grace of the Lord in sending the Messiah through the line of Judah. As we're going to read chapter 2, verse 10 to chapter 3, verse 5, and what we're going to see is Judah is unfaithful. He says, chapter 2, verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he's married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So what you see here is the grace of the Lord. Why is it grace? Because He gives Judah what they do not deserve. He sends the Messiah through their promises. Through the promises to Judah, He sends the Messiah as a descendant of David, even though they don't deserve it. In verses 10 to 16, their unfaithfulness is pictured as adultery. They married the daughter of a foreign god, verses 10 to 12. They have pagan-style worship, verses 12 and 13. And they're divorcing their own wives to go do this, verses 14 to 16. They're unfaithful to the Lord and unfaithful to one another. They're breaking, they're breaking covenants with God and with man. This is why Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 19 on his teaching on divorce. He says God hates divorce. It's like doing violence. It's like covering your garments with violence, he says. Verse 16. He says guard against your spirit. They're unfaithful. And it's pictured as adultery. Illegal divorces in order to marry foreign women who worship foreign gods and then letting their foreign worship practices invade the temple. 
letting it pollute them. Wow, what an indictment. And then secondly, in chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 6, they doubt the Lord's justice. He says in verse 17, you've wearied the Lord's. How have we wearied Him? You said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And then you said, where is the God of justice? They take God's kindness and His patience for weakness. They believe because He has not acted that He will not act. Are you living that way this morning? Do you think that because God has not punished you for sin that He won't? Do you harbor it? Do you love it? Do you practice it and live in it thinking, well, God will never judge me? Where is the God of justice? Repent of that. Just because He's patient and kind does not mean He's weak. Don't take it for weakness. There's a day of judgment coming. He's going to go on to say, this day of the Lord, it's coming. And it's going to be like a refiner's fire. It's going to be like fuller soap. It's going to be as if you were put through the flames and the only thing that's going to survive is anything of substance. And sin and rebellion is not of substance. It's going to be burned up. The messenger will come. Yahweh will judge. Worship and justice will be restored. And this is pictured throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, Philippians 4, 8, 1 John 3, 3. It's pictured of the Messiah as the purifier of His people. We heard it in Matthew 3. He's going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. The wicked are going to be burned up. And we know from other promises in the New Testament, this is going to be a descendant of Judah. Uh, the Old Testament, rather. This is going to be a descendant of Judah. Genesis 49 says the scepter won't depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs comes, the Messiah. Verses 8 to 12. 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David that you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And that house, he means, is not a physical building. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a household And the Messiah, there's one who's going to come who's one of your descendants, and he's going to sit on the throne forever. And David kind of sits back and goes, wow, you've spoken of my descendants for a long time to come. Yeah, forever's a long time to come. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, God is going to restore the broken house of David and repair its ruins. James picks this up in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem council and mentions this. Isaiah 11, there's going to be a branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. And this branch is going to be beautiful and glorious. This is why in Revelation 5, when John turns, he hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and when he turns, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. Who is this? This is Jesus, the Messiah, who is a descendant of David, the promise of the one who's to come who's the descendant of David who will rule and reign forever. Which is why in Revelation 22, the throne is him who's the throne of him who sits on it and of the Lamb forever. And he's our Savior, he's our Messiah. And then if you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and you read the, the, the descendant of Jesus from Adam, I always wondered, you know, how does this apply to my life when I read these genealogies, right? Well, in the genealogy, you see the grace of God. 
He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you just go through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you realize they don't deserve him to be the God of them. Abraham tried to give his wife away twice. Isaac did the same thing. Abraham tried to fulfill the promise of God by having a child from another woman, his servant. Jacob, we talked about him earlier. The cheat, the liar, the thief. The one who swindled his brother, then swindled his father-in-law, and then got swindled by his father-in-law. And yet God chose him to be the head of this nation. And if you look at the women in that lineage, Tamar, We have children in here. We can't even talk about Genesis 18, can we? That she seduced her father-in-law, and yet she's in the line of Christ. Rahab, the prostitute, who saved the spies who went in to the land. Ruth, who was a Moabitess who should not have married into the Israelite nation, but who left her gods to serve the living and true God. Bathsheba, Her who was the wife of Uriah is the way the Matthew account says it. Doesn't even say her name. And then Mary herself. Now Mary wasn't wasn't a sinner in the sense of being, she was a sinner, but she wasn't a sinner in the sense of being a a prostitute, but she was accused of getting pregnant out of wedlock, wasn't she? Jesus' whole life had to put up with that. Isn't it true you're just an illegitimate child? born out of wedlock. And yet God chose these women in His grace and put them in the line of Jesus, in the line of the Messiah. And so Matthew 1 is a lineage of grace and not merit. And even if you look at all the kings that are in that, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly there. And all the kings, the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you know what that book is in summary? These descendants of Judah are not the Messiah. That's the summary of those books. The people were hoping this is the descendant of David. Maybe he's the Messiah. And they lived their lives, even the good ones. Nope, that wasn't it. Nope, that wasn't it. Nope, good King Hezekiah, he sinned too. The Messiah is yet to come, but then Jesus comes. And he's the Messiah. He was faithful unto death obedient, always doing what pleased the Father. Well, then the last section, chapter 3, 6 to 4, 6, is Judah exhorted to return and remember that there's blessings on those who repent. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes. Actually, start in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The unchangeable nature of God ought to bring you great comfort. The reason you and I are not consumed this morning is because the Lord does not change. And all of His promises are yes and amen in Christ. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food. Open the windows of, uh, in my house, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Return, repent, blessings upon those that do. These people are robbing God, and it's manifested in the form of not fulfilling their tithes. Now, the tithe was an Old Testament command under the Mosaic Covenant. It was like our modern taxes. And they were not doing it. And God said, if you repent and return, I will bless you. Now, this is not simply the prosperity gospel that if you give to the church, God will bless you. That's how people will take these verses sometimes. Those false teachers on TV, that, those hucksters that try to get you to send money to their ministry so that God will bless you. What he's saying is if you will keep the covenant, he will bring good things to your experience that you could not equal. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. If you would just be faithful to Him and trust Him and give your lives to Him, He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could imagine or anything you could accomplish with your own hands. What He told him is, you can't make the rain come, but I can. You don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do. And there is this sense of eschatology here. The sense of end times promises. I'm going to send the Messiah and He's the one through whom all of these blessings are going to come. And so they're ultimately spiritual, not physical. But the physical is not excluded, is it? Ever. Isn't this what Jesus said? Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. If the Father cares for the sparrows and feeds them and He clothes the flowers of the field, how will He not give you what you need? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then he says, the day of the Lord will bring salvation through judgment. Verse 13 of chapter 3, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You see the pattern? God makes a statement. He gives a rhetorical question as if it's a question in their mouth and then He answers. You've said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Basically, they're saying, there's no reason to follow the Lord. It's, it's a vain thing to do. Why follow God? I'm going to go live my own life and do it my own way. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Verse 16, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God says, I've got a book, and I've got names written in that book of those who remember me and serve me and keep my word. And there's a day coming in judgment when I'm going to judge. And guess what? I'm going to spare the righteous and I'm going to judge the wicked. I'm going to bring salvation through judgment. 
Chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God distinguishes between the good and the wicked, and the proof of His covenant love is His sparing of the righteous and His condemning of the wicked. And then He says in chapter 4, verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise. And I take this to be a messianic title. Jeremiah called the Messiah the Lord our righteousness in Jeremiah 23. And in Luke chapter 1, in fact, turn over there real quick. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. Zechariah in his prophecy, this song that he prophesies regarding the Messiah combines this picture of the Son of Righteousness with the Lord our Righteousness. Verse 76, he says, You, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He says, when is this day coming? This day is coming when Messiah comes. And now we know from the New Testament there's two phases to this. His first coming, he came to go to the cross and to procure salvation, but he's coming a second time, not for salvation, but for judgment. Well, he's bringing salvation to his elect. He's bringing salvation to us. He's going to call us out from the ends of the earth. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness. But he says, Zechariah here says, we're going to be visited by the Messiah who's going to be the sunrise and he's going to give light to those who sit in darkness. And in the shadow of death, he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Malachi, at the end of the book, he makes a final prophecy regarding... Elijah, and he says in verses 4 to 6, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter desolation. This emphasis on keeping the Mosaic covenant in verse 4 I think it anticipates the work of Christ in fulfilling the law for us on our behalf so that in the new covenant, we're a new people who have the law written not on stone but on our hearts. And the ministry of the second Elijah is fulfilled by John the Baptist. According to Matthew 11, that's why I had Matthew 3 read for you. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Messiah, he is the one who said, repent, right? And then he he condemns the Pharisees. He said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. One last passage, John 1. You guys know this well. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. 
For from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. That is Jesus, the Son. He has made Him known. This glory of Christ, the glory of the Messiah, is seen when He dwells among us. And that word dwell is tabernacle. It's the Old Testament word skene, for ta- or the Greek word that translates the Old Testament word for tabernacle that was used in the wilderness where God met Israel. He is glorious. And verse 15 speaks of His supremacy. John says He ranks before me because He came before me. He's supreme in two ways. He's the supreme man, and He is supreme in His deity. He is God. He's not only supreme, He's sufficient. Of His fullness, verse 16, we have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the believing community were recipients of this abundance of glory displayed in Jesus. How is God's name made known to the nations? He sent His Son to display His glory. There's never been a higher place from which one is stooped. There's never been a lower position to which one has aspired. And there's never been a costlier obedience by which one has served. That's Bruce Ware in his book, The Man Christ Jesus. This grace comes through Jesus and He reveals the Father. And Malachi promised He was going to come and be a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice, a descendant of Judah who would come like a refiner's fire and He would bring life and peace and salvation to His people. And that's the message of the Minor Prophets. And this is the message of the gospel that we've received and we believe and we want to share with others. And so may we preach it to ourselves and preach it to our community and preach it to our family. This is where life and peace are found in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. What a glorious word it is. Thank you for revealing yourself in your son. We want to be like him. Father, may today you cause your children, your sons and your daughters to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. May they see Him in His supremacy and His sufficiency. And may He deliver them today from their fears and their doubts and their sorrows. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.